0: Thank you, Brother Will, that was beautiful. Rob Fulbright's my hero, <laughs> wrestling the donkey into church. See, I understand I have a very creative wife as well who has ideas of things that would be really awesome, and, and they really would be awesome, <laughs> but, but I saw that fear in Rob's eye. What if this donkey gets loose? <laughs> what will I do? Yvonne wasn't nervous at all! Did you see that? she was, oh, it's all okay, but yeah, I know, I feel his pain, but, uh, but he was a hero, he was brave, sometimes I'm not even brave enough to try, so I'm inspired now, some of your ideas, we'll, we'll try them, it'll, it'll be good, all right. Now that was a lot of fun, and uh, if you're young and you want to, remember, he said uh, out back, you can go check out the little guy. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this day, for this chance for us to be here today. Lord, I pray you'll send your spirit now to speak to us, a spirit that is familiar to us if we've spent time reading your word. Send that same spirit today in Jesus' name, amen. Well so we're beginning uh, our series for the summer, series for which uh, we're thankful to Pastor Bernie because this was his idea, he put the whole, well I was going to say framework but then it would sound like I was trying to make a pun there, wouldn't it? He put this whole concept together, there we go, for this summer, the idea of frames. We got a lot of frames and we have particularly uh, Mike and Sherlene. Uh, and now why in the world can't I think of their last name right now? Where's Patty? <laughs> Fisher! Thank you. There it is. Mike and Shirlene Fisher who've done all of these uh, d- different frames for us uh, to get us on our theme. But you'll notice something about all of these frames. What's, what's missing in all the frames? Picture. The picture. Yeah, the picture. Frame's just not the same without a picture, is it? Well, we've got them that way on purpose to, to get you thinking about what is the picture and why are we talking about frames? Well, well because doctrines, the things, the teachings of the church, the, the concepts and the ideas and the understandings that we hold in common within a church, they're like the frames. But sometimes we get caught, so caught up in our discussions about doctrines and, and their role and maybe our disagreements and so forth about them, we get confused and, and we turn the doctrine into the picture. And then you see the wrong thing in the picture. You shouldn't come to church and see me in the picture or what I think in the picture. And this is one of the reasons it's so important for you to not just listen to one voice or or another voice, or to choose your favorite speaker, but to listen to multiple voices, because as as the theologian of this day, one of the most prominent, N.T. Wright, has made the comment, he says it to his classes, at the beginning of the class, he says, I'm pretty sure that most of what I'm telling you is true. I'm also pretty sure that there's a few things I'm wrong about. The problem is I don't know which things. If I did know which things, I would fix them. But I'm pretty sure most of what I'm saying is true. Make sure you listen to other people as well for the things I might not be right about. If we focus on the wrong things, we get the wrong picture. Doctrines are frames. The picture is Jesus. Doctrines give us clarity and a common starting point for life and faith. But we always have to be careful with doctrines because they can, if not carefully monitored, become the focus of our faith. The doctrines are designed like a good frame To draw our focus, but not our focus to the frame, to draw our focus to the picture. Different churches organize themselves in their doctrinal statements in different ways. The Seventh-day Adventist church has organized itself in a list of 28 doctrinal statements called the 28 Fundamental Beliefs. There were 27 not too long ago, now there's 28. That's not a bad thing, it's just a true thing and it also should give us an insight into our understanding of doctrines in a way that I believe our church, when we're thinking clearly, understands extremely well and it is a gift we've received from those who came before us. If you were to go to the Seventh-day Adventist church website and you were to go to the top and, and click on beliefs, you would be directed to a page that would have a summary of beliefs over here on the side. But then if you went down a little ways on the other side, you would see a little place you could click that said PDF of the 28 fundamental to beliefs. And if you went there and clicked on that, sure enough, you would get listed the 28 fundamental fundamental beliefs. But before you started reading them, you would see a little introduction, a little preamble. And I believe it is a very important statement that exists there. And it reads this way. Seventh-day Adventists accept the Bible as their only creed and hold certain fundamental beliefs to be the teaching of the holy scriptures. These beliefs, as set forth here, constitute the church's understanding and expression of the teaching of scripture. Revision of these statements may be expected at a general conference session when the church is led by the Holy Spirit to a fuller understanding of Bible truth or finds better language in which to express the teachings of God's holy word." They are intentionally designed to be changeable because we're not claiming that these fundamental beliefs were dictated to us by God because when we get caught up in that mentality then they become the picture. But they're just supposed to be the frame that shows us how to see the picture Now, if you were to continue on reading immediately after this preamble, you would come to fundamental belief number one. Now, just because this one occurs first does not imply some sort of hierarchy in the fundamental beliefs. Now, the the thing about it is, it's really kind of a dead-end process to try to go comparing which beliefs are are more important than others, or which ones are primary and which ones aren't. Don't even bother with that. They're they're a package. Just receive it. But the one that's listed first is actually listed first uh, for reasons that point up something about our history. And it's good for us to understand this. The Seventh-day Adventist Church developed in its earliest days and through those days in the midst of modernism. Now if you know anything about modernism, modernism tends to be very much based in uh, constructs and structures and organizations and systems. And any decent modernist approach to understanding anything would seek at the very beginning to establish the core upon which we will be basing all the rest of our assumptions. That's a very modernist approach to things. A postmodern would come at it a completely different way. But understand that the beliefs as they appear were developed out of a more modernist tradition. Again, I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying it is. And because of the way it is, here is fundamental belief number one The Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, are the written Word of God. You see that establishment of the basis upon which we will then build everything else, it's a very modern construct. The Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testament, are the written word of God given by divine inspiration through holy men of God who spoke and wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In this word, God has committed to man the knowledge necessary for salvation. The Holy Scriptures are the infallible revelation of his will. That's an important line and we'll come back to this. Now listen to this. This gives a list of four things. This is a very good list. They are the standard of character, the test of experience, the authoritative revealer of doctrines, and the trustworthy record of God's acts in history. Now not that you necessarily care, but I'll tell you anyway. I think this is a good statement. I think it's a good statement both for what it does say and for what it does not say. More on that later and potentially even more on that next week. But the first doctrine listed in the fundamental beliefs is a statement about the Bible. So what about this book? What about this Bible? For this next section of what I wanna to talk to you about, I'm indebted to my wife, uh, Professor Alicia Patterson from the Adventist University of Health Sciences, who teaches a class called Jesus in Contemporary Society. All right, got it. And in one of her lectures, talks about the Bible with her class. Now, these slides we're gonna look at, she actually received from the person who taught this class before her, Professor Stan Tobias. yes. And I can't think of any names up here today, so if I don't call your name today, please don't feel bad. All right. Who taught this class before her and gave her these slides. And this is context, this is historical context about the Bible. So let's take a look at what we've got here. No book has been so loved, so hated, so revered, so damned as the Bible. A few facts, it's the oldest book in existence, you ever think about that? It took around 1600 years to write. Think about that a little bit. If we were to go back 1600 years, that a book would just being finished up today, the first writings came from the year 415, and now we're just finishing it up, that'd be a a long time. 40 different authors. You remember what I said at the beginning, how important it is to listen to multiple voices? God knows that. That's why there's at least 40 different voices in the Bible. It is the all-time bestseller. You know, you have the New York Times bestseller list, but the number one book for every year is actually number two, because the Bible is always the best-selling book every year translated into more languages than any other book, more people have died over this book than any other, and there seems to be something supernatural about it because those who receive it and read it seem to find in it keys to happiness and keys to an eternal life. How do we know the Bible's inspired? Well, there's a number of ways. There's there's fulfilled prophecies contained within it. There's unique historical accuracy. There's certain scientific accuracies. There's its unique structure. But then there's the Bible's unique effect on the lives of those who read it. Let's talk about some of these, let's talk about prophecies. If you were to look in your Bible, you would find out that the prophet Isaiah spoke about the kingdom of Babylon arising and being victorious in the land of Israel before the kingdom of Babylon had arisen and even become prominent. You would read in Ezekiel about what would become of Tyre and Sidon. Down the road, you would read in the book of Isaiah and even see named Cyrus, the leader of the Medes and the Persians, who would overthrow the Babylonians, who hadn't even yet come to power. You would read in Daniel about the Medo-Persia and the Greek empires that were to come. And in Daniel's own lifetime, the first change would take place. But, But Alexander the Great, who he speaks of about Greece, is long from being born at the time Daniel writes about him. And you would also find in the book of Micah, specifically described where Jesus would be born. But you, Bethlehem, are by no means least among the cities of Judah. Some interesting things have come to light over the years through archeology, span one of those being the Moabite stone. It was discovered in the year 1868 and it has in its writing confirmation of the Moabite attacks on Israel that are recorded in 2 Kings chapters one and three. You'd also find the Lakeish letters, which Alicia was just telling me some more things about as I was sitting there, fascinating. Discovered in the 1930s that describe the attack of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon on Jerusalem in the year 586 BC. Then there's the Dead Sea Scrolls that date back to 150 to 170 years before Jesus and that contain all or parts of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. Apparently they didn't like that book very well in that community. As far as accuracy goes, the Bible has been preserved with amazing, even miraculous accuracy. When you compare those Dead Sea Scrolls that were found from 150 years before Jesus with the Masoretic Text, which the Old Testament had come from years later down the road, when you took those and compared them together, they were practically identical. There is miraculous accuracy The comparisons show the carefulness with which scribes have have preserved these words generation after generation. The Ryland Papyrus was a fragment of the Gospel of John that appears to have been written around the year 125, which is within 100 years from the life of Jesus, found in Egypt, translated in 1934, matched up with the later texts. The Cyrus Cylinder can be seen in the uh, British Museum in London. It records Cyrus' overthrow of Babylon and included on this is a description of how the Jewish captives were allowed to go back to the land, just like the Bible says. How do we know the Bible is inspired? Well it's got a cohesive unity. How do you write a book with 40 different people over 1600 years and never fundamentally change the description of the God of that book? Accuracy and in the Bible Christ is revealed There's a number of other ancient documents that have come down to our day that that scholars tend to give a lot of say to and a lot of significance to. One is Tacitus, the the Annals of Imperial Rome. That's considered as a a reliable history of that era, but the truth is there's only one manuscript and it was from copies 700 years after it was written. You have Josephus and his writing about the Jewish wars. Well, nine manuscripts have survived Uh, But even these manuscripts were 1,000 to 1,200 years removed from when the original was written. Yet people use these manuscripts to try to criticize the Bible? Strange. Homer, who wrote the Iliad, 650 manuscripts have survived but but none any closer to the original authorship than 1,000 years. And then you have the Bible. 5,000 plus manuscripts existing to our day, some of them written less than 100 years after the time of Christ. No other document in history has more examples that what you have in your hand is what was originally written than the Bible. Nothing else even comes close. The New Testament, then, has not only survived in more manuscripts than any other book from antiquity, but it has survived in a purer form than any other great book, a form 99.5% pure. In other words, if you compiled all of those manuscripts together into one place and compared them to each other, They are accurate to 99.5% exactly the same. And that 0.5% difference makes no difference to what they mean. Truly the Bible is like no other book. Well, what does Scripture say about itself? We have a few passages 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. This is the Apostle Peter writing. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's referring to what we would call the Old Testament because that's what he had. He's he's writing the letter that's going to become New Testament one day. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now this is Paul. What does he say? Again, all scripture is God-breathed. You know, I think that's a very important term he used there. And I think it's very important to notice this, what he does say and what he doesn't say. He does not say all scripture is God dictated, does he? He says God breathed. Now the power of that word breath is that in both Jewish and Greek, it's the same word for spirit. So you see, like Peter was saying, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now we have Paul saying, all scripture is God-breathed. And what's it useful for? It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. For what purpose? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's some things in the Old Testament, and in this context, it's going to be primarily referring to what we call the writings of Moses. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Then we have Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. There's a caution we might want to hang on to. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20. Consult God's instruction in the testimony of warning if anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. In other words, what they're saying here is, when you're out there listening to what other people have to say, compare it to this. And if it doesn't line up with this, it does not have light in it. We used to say it another way in the, in the King James Version, to the law and to the testimony. If it speak not according to these there is no light in it. And then Hebrews 4 verse 12 for the word of God is alive and active. These are words on pages. But God breathed words filled with the power of the spirit and when received And read in that same spirit in which they were given, these words come alive. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I've sometimes heard people say, and there was a point in my life where I kind of thought this way too, I, I thought about the Bible as the book of answers. And there's nothing wrong with that, there's a lot of answers in here. But you know, the more time I spent with this I began to realize something else about it. This isn't just the book of answers to my questions. This is the book of questions to all my answers. For example, today, as I was driving myself here, I pulled up to the side of the road and there was someone standing with a sign that said, homeless. And I remember thinking in my mind, my answer for how I'm just going to keep going and not pay any attention to this. My answer was, there isn't anything I can do to help, besides how do I know that's the truth? And then I got to church and foolishly happened to look on Facebook and someone had posted words from this book that said, don't bypass your brother in need. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart, doesn't it? What does Ellen White say about the Bible? Ellen White is significant in Adventist history. What does she have to say? Well, let me give you a few highlights. As an educating power, the Bible is of more value than the writings of all the philosophers of all ages. In its wide range of style and subjects, there is something to interest and instruct every mind to ennoble every interest The light of revelation shines undimmed into the distant past where human annals cast not a ray of light. There is nothing more calculated to energize the mind and strengthen the intellect than the study of the word of God. No other book is so potent to elevate the thoughts, to give vigor to the faculties, as the broad ennobling truths of the Bible. If God's word were studied as it should be, men would have a breadth of mind, a nobility of character, and a stability of purpose that are rarely seen in these times. In searching the scriptures, in feeding upon the words of life, Oh, consider, it is the voice of God to the soul. We may be confused sometimes over the voice of our friends, but in the Bible we have the counsel of God upon all important subjects which concern our eternal interests, and in temporal matters we may learn a great deal. The Bible is God's voice speaking to us just as surely as if we could hear it with our ears. If we realize this, with what awe we would open God's Word, and with what earnestness we would search its precepts, the reading and contemplation of the Scriptures would be regarded as an audience with the Infinite One. What book can compare with the Bible? An understanding of its teachings is essential for every child and youth and for those of mature age, for it is the word of God given to guide the human family to heaven." To this point, I've been telling you this book is reliable, this book is miraculously preserved, Its internal testimony is that it can be trusted, and the testimony of others around us is the same. However, there are dangers we must watch for. What keeps us on track when we read the Bible? You see, there are Bible scholars out there who teach about the Bible but don't actually believe anything that's in it. So it isn't just as simple as looking at these words. So what are the safeguards? What is the key to keep us on track when we read our Bibles? Well, I believe that this is it. John chapter five, verse 39, Jesus speaking. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Here's what I want to tell you. If your study of scripture is not leading you to Jesus, then you're reading it wrong. Because this book is given to lead you to Jesus. But we can go wrong sometimes. We can do just like ancient Israel did. You see, Israel had this problem and it was during a time when they didn't necessarily have all the words of Scripture we have. They had this problem, this cycle they would fall into. God would bless them and they would become happy in their blessing and then they would become careless in their devotion to God and they would begin to worship idols. So God would allow difficulties to fall upon them. And then they would repent. And then the Lord would be merciful and send a deliverer, a judge, to bring his word and straighten them again. And for a generation or so they would go right, but then they would fall back into that cycle until one day the Babylonians would come and carry them away. But God in his mercy would restore them to the land and they in their determination said, we're not gonna do that again. And so they began to pour themselves into these writings, these writings that were to direct them to the Messiah who was to come. Yet ironically, when Jesus came, the faith had become Phariseeism. And the very ones who claimed to know this book could not recognize the Son of God when he came they had made the Bible their latest idol and had inadvertently put it ahead of God and His Son Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that that's not just a danger for that time. We live with a similar danger today where instead of seeing Jesus in the picture, we're in danger of seeing the Bible in the picture. Our intention is good. We want to highly esteem the Scriptures. But if we don't handle it right, we'll turn the Bible into the picture. This was a development that was called Protestant Biblicism and it began uh, as an effort to engage with significant issues of discussion of the day And ideas like inerrancy and word-for-word literalism and interpretation and application began to appear, and all of these ideas which at first appear to be an approach of respect to the Word, yet in the end cause the Word to become more subject to the views of its interpreters than the interpreters are subject to the views of the Bible. The great theologian Karl Barth wrote against this, he wrote these words, he said, the Bible was now grounded upon itself, apart from the mystery of Christ and the Holy Ghost. Do not approach this word without the spirit that inspired it. It became a paper pope. And unlike the living pope in Rome, it was wholly given up into the hands of its interpreters. It was no longer a free and spiritual force, but an instrument of human power. Have you ever seen someone wield this sword to gain power and control over others? That's not what it's for. This is a critical concept that we will come back to throughout the series, and specifically talk about next week when we talk about creation. You should know that much of the current controversy within Adventism, including issues like the ordination of women, is the result of a fundamental disagreement between different models of interpreting this book. I take you back to a piece of the statement of doctrine. In this word, God has committed to man the knowledge necessary for salvation. What is the knowledge necessary for salvation? Or better, who? John 5, 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify of me. The scriptures are the frame. The picture is Jesus. Jesus doesn't exist because we found him in this holy book. You understand that, right? Jesus is in this book because he exists. And this book was written because he exists. Jesus is the picture. The Bible is the frame in which we find him. Now this book will forever be under attack from people on every side. The liberal theologians will attack the Bible claiming it to be outdated, irrelevant, and false. Yet for many it seems this is just an excuse to avoid its mandates and its directions. And the fundamentalists in response, will then be prone to turning the Bible into an idol, claiming things for it that it doesn't even claim for itself, and all too often for the purpose of finally outsmarting God, figuring out exactly what it is we must do in order to be saved. But neither one of these groups gets it right. And that is why I like the wording of the Adventist Church's doctrine from before, Let me read it to you. In this word, God has committed to man the knowledge necessary for salvation. The holy scriptures are the infallible revelation of his will. This book tells you without fault what God wants, but don't demand of it other things. This is here to tell you what God wants, but don't turn it into an idol. I like the way the statement is put because it refutes the liberal theology that would say this book is useless without trapping itself in the dead end of fundamentalism that demands every little number and detail in here be somehow corroborated before I can believe this tells me God's will? Why do you waste your time on minutia when the large point is so obvious? Which brings us to one more slide in the presentation. The Bible reveals God and exposes humanity. It presents us as lost and reveals Jesus as the one who finds us and brings us back to God. Jesus Christ is the focus of Scripture. Don't let anybody else put you off. It's not a paper pope. Nor is it merely a curious book whose useful days are past. Instead, it is God's word to you that you might find Jesus. Ellen White in 1909, six years before she would pass away, at the close of her last presentation to a general conference session, closed her speech with these words. Describing her, with trembling lips and a voice touched with deep emotion, she assured the ministers and other workers that God loves them and Jesus delights to make intercession in their behalf. Many were deeply moved. She closed her address stating, brethren, we shall separate for a little while, but let us not forget what we have heard at this meeting. Let us go forward in the strength of the mighty one, considering the joy that is set before us of seeing his face in the kingdom of God and of going out no more forever. Let us remember that we are to be partakers of the divine nature and that angels of God are right around us, that we need not be overcome by sin. Let us send our petitions to the throne of God in time of temptation and in faith lay hold of his divine power. I pray, God, that this may be the experience of each one of us and that in the great day of God we all may be glorified together. Thus closed the last sermon Ellen White was to make at a general conference session. She moved away from the desk and started to her seat, then turned and came back picked up the Bible from which she had read, opened it, and held it out on an extended hand that trembled with age. She admonished, brethren and sisters, I commend to you this book. Brothers and sisters, I too commend to you this book. and I challenge you to take it up every day and read it. The Bible has more of what you truly need in this life than anything else upon which you could lay your hand or cast your eye. Contained within here is wisdom, counsel, knowledge, and truth. Therefore search the scriptures For in there you will find Jesus and he Will give you and lead you to eternal life Let's pray Father in heaven. We thank you for your word and we humbly receive it this day Lord protect us from turning it into an idol but also protect us from letting it lie aside, useless and idle to us. But instead, let us each day take it and read it and receive your, your words, your leading, your guiding, your correction, your teaching. Point us on our way to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.